Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Okay, what do you crave? What do you, what can you not get enough of? Whether it's um, food, sex, relationships, drugs of various uh, varieties, caffeine, whatever your thing is. What's your thing? That is the topic of today's talk by Shastri Ethan Nickturn. We're talking about craving. We're talking about addiction. We're talking about states of mind that swallow us whole, seemingly. Shastri Ethan Nickturn is a regular contributor to the podcast. He is the author of several books, including most recently, The Dharma of the Princess Bride. And this was a talk he gave at our weekly Dharma gathering a couple of weeks ago. You are invited, of course, to our weekly Dharma gathering. It's every Tuesday night at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Visit our website, inmy.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Our introductory meditation weekend which is called Shambhala Training Weekend 1, is coming up later this month, the weekend of June 29th. It's a uh, weekend, Friday night, all day Saturday and half day Sunday. Anyone who has been interested in getting more into meditation, and in particular, the Shambhala meditation teachings, you are welcome to dive in. This is a great introduction, a great opportunity to deepen your meditation practice or to start if you've never done it before. For more information and to register, click the link on the homepage, ny.shambhala.org, for Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again. Okay, here is Shastri Ethan Nickturn to talk to us about craving, about addiction, about those those crazy states of mind, those... those Cyclical states of mind that lead to closed cycles of behavior, right? Circles are really interesting shape because a lot of times a circle is what brings people together. You know, it can can be a, a sign of community or unity or equality, right? Um, in this case, it's kind of more like the, the hamster on a wheel image of a circle, like being caught and not being able to escape circular motion. From my uh, memory of high school physics, what makes circular motion happen is that the, the velocity and the acceleration are at right angles with each other. So to say that in Buddhist terms, where you're trying to go and where you're actually going are at odds with each other. And that's what creates a, a cycle. And so that's, I mean, I think that's the, the first thing I want to say about, um, I, this is such a broad topic because we could talk about um, uh, smartphone usage. We could talk about um, addiction to certain types of thought pattern. You know, we could talk about certain types of consumption addiction. 
cigarettes or alcohol or opioids or food, right? If you're a relatively new parent like me, you could just talk about maybe I'm drinking too much coffee, <laughs> right? So it, I, I would invite each of us to just have in mind as we talk about this theoretical framework, which is also an experiential framework, um, each of us to have in mind like one habitual cycle that's maybe a little bit uncomfortably with you right now. And that's I think the first lesson of studying um, these teachings is acknowledging that we are all caught in cycles, which the uh, Sanskrit word for cycle is samsara. It literally means circular motion. And actually, very literal translation of the word samsara, this is my bad New York City joke, soul cycle is the most literal translation of samsara that there could be. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it refers to kind of a caughtness, you know? And, and so I think the, the first thing about thinking about any pattern of caught up addictive behavior is realizing that w some part of our mind, unless we are completely awake, according to these teachings, is in samsara. So we often don't want to admit that we have habitual patterns or caught places or obsessive or addictive traits, but it's sort of like we could all just admit that and honor that. That's what samsara means. So there's, there's some kind of forgiveness it sounds like really, a lot of Buddha's thought sounds like really bad news, but it's actually really forgiving. It's just saying, just accept. And when you see a person having a hard time, why are they acting like that? They're probably caught in certain addictive patterns of behavior. Some may be very visible to you, some may be hidden to you. And so there's some kind of out of this, there's some acceptance of oneself and some kind of love and then some kind of curiosity that comes from living in samsara. And that's really important because I think when we look at cycles of our stuck patterns, we often say, I just need to stop doing that. Why can't I stop doing that? And it's almost like we only want to study the cycle up to the point where we make the bad choice. But as we'll see tonight, these two different frameworks, you need to study the entire cycle in order to gain insight. You need to study the entire. So you can't just study the moment up till when you grab your phone or the cigarette. You need to study the good feeling that momentarily comes from that and what happens after that what makes you want to grab your phone again, what makes you feel like I probably shouldn't be doing that, am I doing this too much? You need to be curious about the whole cycle. It's a, it's, a, it's a study. And so some kind of acceptance that we are here because we have things that we're working on is really important. Some kind of Overcoming of shame is like, I've noticed that, that shame is, basically sh shame is anti-mindfulness. That's just what it is. It's just like, it's what stops a person 
from wanting to see what's happening. Do you agree? So would everybody just, if there's any complete, I mean, there are, all of us have awakened nature, and there's probably areas of our life where we are each completely liberated. But if anybody in this room is completely free of habitual patterns, the rest of what I'm about to say is not for you. And you should get your money back because the, the hierarchy here is misaligned. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is um, two frameworks. Uh, and if you want readings about them, you can have them. One is uh, teachings on karma, which I talk about, a, the classic Buddhist approach to a cycle of habitual patterns in the second chapter of the book, The Road Home. So if you wanted to read more on it's a little bit complex, that cycle, you could read that. And the other is somebody I've had a chance to interview and read their book, a man named Dr. Judson Brewer, who's a, a psychiatrist. Um, he's the head of research at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass, which was founded by John Kabat-Zinn, who uh, founded Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Um, and uh, he's, a, he's a Buddhist psychiatrist, basically, and he gave a TED Med talk about quitting smoke, a mindfulness approach uh, intervention to quitting smoking. So um, very useful information. So he used uh, ideas and teachings from the uh, mid 20th century um, Western psychologist B.F. Skinner uh, about sort of reward based learning to use this in training puppies. <laughs> and people, yeah, well, people are just two-legged puppies, basically. <laughs> we just have two paws that don't get as dirty. Um, uh, and combining that with uh, teachings on karma, and he said, if you want to understand any behavioral pattern, this is uh, Judson Brewer, you just look at three moments, basically, and study them and grow curious about them. And um, the first one is trigger, which means a feeling happens that is triggered. The second one is behavior. And the third one is reward. Very, I like it when there's three, because there's a lot of lists in Buddhist thought, and, and lists of three are easier to memorize. So trigger, behavior, reward. You could break that down as the Buddhist teachings on uh, karma do a little bit more and you could break that first one down into two moments which is our mind and our sense perceptions come into contact with something and then there's a feeling. So if you wanted to get a little bit more uh, what's the word, um, precise or uh, granular. Um, trigger means contact and feeling. And he's, he has chapters in this book that are really interesting about like Facebook usage. They've apparently located the part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens that can predict, correlate how active this part of the brain is with how much time you spend on Facebook. <laughs> So it's interesting to think about why do we actually go on Facebook? Um, 
as a sort of habitual pattern, or, or I guess you could probably do this for any social media. Um, what he talks about is that that part of the brain is about validation of the self. So you go to express yourself and then have other people validate that they've heard your or seen your expression. And it's very numerical, right? 33 likes on that post. And you're like, why did I get 10 likes on this other post that I liked more than the 33 like post? So there's a kind of trigger and then there's a behavior and then there's a re reward. It's interesting, one of the things that he says when he's talking about smoking, I've heard him also on a podcast, is if you look at this cycle, one of the reasons that smoking is such a hard addiction is the cycle of behavior is much more frequent, right? So you, the number of puffs, the feeling, and then you puff, and then you feel a certain way, that happens many times in a row. So you could think about what is the most addictive thing of all, what is the thing that we trigger behavior, reward, our smartphones. I mean, I think we're puffing on those even more than a smoker puffs on a cigarette, right? It's like, moment, moment of space. Right? So it's, it's interesting to study this, to study what actually, what is the feeling, what is our mind-body come into contact with that gives us a feeling that then leads to a behavior. Boredom is definitely a big one. So if you want to work with most addictions, be willing to be more bored. That's what meditation is for. They don't, there's no way to market this clearly, that <laughs> actually being willing to be more bored is the key to happiness in life. And then the reward is interesting. This is what I was thinking about, because most of the things that we get addicted to, there is a reward, right? There's some either positive thought about ourselves. If somebody likes your post, that's a reward. Sip of coffee, you feel warm, feel like if you like cream and sugar in it, some kind of cream like I do. There's a little feeling of smoothness, right? And then, and then alertness, something invades and you go from like this to, oh, now I can make it through the world for one more moment. <laughs> Slightly sleep deprived. But here's the thing, it, the reward, and this is what I've come to study, if this is a samsaric cycle, the reward has a pleasure, and then that pleasure sours into something else. Because if it was just, if the reward was just pleasure, just do more of it. There wouldn't be a problem, actually, right? If you could just say, like, every time I sip coffee, I get happier, you would say, why don't we just turn meditation centers and therapist's office into cafes, right? 
could say the same thing about more intense experiences like alcohol, right? So for this to be a samsaric pattern, the reward has to sour into something that recreates the trigger. And it can be more complicated in that. The teachings on karma have 12 steps, which I'll only include four of. But to really study and to really make friends with the fact that the things we do to feel good sour without that meaning that life sucks and is meaningless is a really interesting practice. To just notice with coffee, let's say, now I feel a little, whoa, feel a little shaky. Or I didn't, then I didn't sleep that well because I had that 3 p.m. cup of coffee and then I didn't sleep that well the next night. Does anybody have that afternoon coffee? Afternoon pick-me-up turns into like 1 a.m. anxiety. Right. So to actually study that without being like, where does the mind want to go with no loving kindness? It wants to go into, I am an idiot for drinking that cup of coffee. Why can't I put my phone down? That's, that's an, uh, there's other levels of that. They've actually engineered the phone so that you don't want to put it. So you're not being helped by the people with technological experience there. But we want to go into blame and like, why can't I just stop it rather than actually just studying like, oh, this is the experience. So Judson Brewer talks about like in his intervention for smokers, like just getting them to see that like the cigarette doesn't taste good, which he was like most, of the smokers like hadn't even realized like wow and they that was their big insight into the nature of samsara the cigarette tastes like shit <laughs> i think coffee also tastes like shit because i didn't like it when i was 12. <laughs> sorry if there's any baristas in here right <laughs> But if coffee really tasted good, kids would like it, I feel like. <laughs> I don't know. We could, we could grow more curious about this. So, and in the deeper patterns, I think, the harder patterns, obviously the, the souring leads into, can lead into a really uh, negative place, right? Deep feelings of unworthiness. That's the other aspect that I've talked to uh, several friends about, um, looking into situations where people had very, people close to me or uh, friends or students had very severe um, habitual patterns. And the relationship between the souring into some feeling of unworthiness and isolation. That's the other thing I would say universally about uh, addictive patterns and you can test this for yourself. I haven't found a, um, a counter example yet that if it's an addictive samsaric pattern, part of the experience of the negative reward is isolation. It takes you away from some sense of connection to yourself and some sense of connection to other people. 
Now you can say that's not true. I, my, I never got into smoking cigarettes because in high school I had asthma and everybody who smoked, it was a big choice to not smoke because it felt like all the important conversations happened in the circle where people were smoking, right? So you could say that's not, that's sangha, that's community. <laughs> Couldn't you say that? They were together. But in the souring, there's some experience of isolation. Does anybody feel that about? Is that true of the, the smoker circle in high school, that they're still, even though it looks like they're really coming together, they're not really? I'm not sure. I'm just throwing some ideas out there so we can be curious about these patterns together. So in the teachings on karma, the longer cycle of karma, what it basically says is you have contact. So you have a feeling that comes from a particular experience. So let's take the, go back to the smartphone example. There's a moment on the subway where nothing is happening. And two years ago, you couldn't look at your phone on the subway. Remember when you couldn't get service like two years ago on the subway? Now you can. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. And let's say, ladies and gentlemen, we're being held in station. And there's a feeling of like, oh, here we are. A bunch of humans on a train. I really was hoping for more. <laughs> just a bunch of people. I'm just trying to keep this humorous because that's what this would turn into, a bunch of humans in a room. <laughs> trying to avoid our disappointment. <laughs> and so there's a contact with a uh, feeling of it's just me and my sense perceptions, me and my thoughts, me and my emotions, that's uncomfortable. In some way, that's unpleasant. So that's the other interesting thing. When you look into the feeling that is triggered, it's almost always an unpleasant feeling. And then there's a craving which means that there's already some from your past, from your neural pathways or your karmic pathways, there's some understanding of what removed or assuaged this feeling from the past, right? You look at your phone and you can look, basically what is a smartphone? It's a chance to look at human beings who are not in the room with you. That's what it's either the human beings in the room with you, and if you're alone in a room, that's an interesting one, or it's the human beings who aren't in the room with you, right? So you're just saying, I'm really uncomfortable here, let me go to the human beings who aren't in the room with me. And it, it does something, right? It allows you to make it through until the doors close and the train starts moving. But then it sets in, motion, that pattern's gonna happen again. That will be triggered again. There will be a moment where it's just you and your body and your sense perceptions and you won't be able to handle the discomfort. 
so that's how a pattern reinforces itself. Contact, feeling, craving, grasping. You do the thing that you think assuaged the discomfort. Even if it brings you back around the cycle to the point where you're gonna be triggered again because there is no way that is the last moment of boredom in your life. And that's really what the master meditators realized. They were like, the idea that if I do this thing, it's gonna solve, there's no way this is gonna solve the problem. Samsara is endless. That doesn't mean we're stuck. That means once you're in a cycle, that cycle is endless, right? I have to do something different. But the thing that we do that's different can't be coming from shame, and it can't be coming from just perpetuating another cycle that leads to the same negative reward, right? You can't just be like, God, I suck. Why can't I just be... I'm like practicing meditation. I mean, you guys should know how this is for me. I'm like, what if I'm on the L train and somebody knows I teach meditation and they see me looking at my phone? <laughs> so at a certain point, you realize this is an, I am going to have to choose something that's not getting mad at myself and that's not perpetuating the cycle. So what the teachings on karma say is the way out, which we have to practice like a gazillion times, is there's this thing called the gap. And here's the thing about the real gap, there is nothing for sale there. <laughs> if you're in the gap where something is being sold, it's not the real gap. There's just space and presence and experience and discomfort. And what we try to get you to focus on in the Shambhala tradition is the beauty of that moment. We, we do things like have flower arrangements in the room and try to make eye contact and slow down and bow to each other so that maybe we not only say like, I'm gonna suffer through this discomfort, but also say, wow, these are interesting people on this train. My big toe on my left foot. That is an interesting sensation of weight. The air conditioners are on. It's only May. And you start to actually investigate, you start to kind of flip the script, as we used to say, on um, this sort of negative assessment of the present moment unaltered and just rest in the gap. You have other choices. There's different meditative choices, but they all kind of come down to that. You can also, if the feeling is overwhelming, with like a lot of major addictions, you can't just rest in the gap by yourself, right? I know I have many friends who decided I can't just go to the bar and sit and look at the shiny colors of, I mean, if you look at a bar from a Shambhalian standpoint, the sensory 
you, ideally you could do this. You could just say, no, I don't need to drink any of these drinks. I'm gonna just look at the color display of the bottles and have a meaningful experience. Some people can do that. But some of us have to say, I can't go to the bar. I can't have this trigger even come up that close to my body. So I need to move to a different space. And I need to not isolate myself. I need to find the right community to help support that. I do think whatever our habitual pattern is that you're thinking about right now, the idea that you're gonna overcome it alone is flawed. Even if it's just I wanna use my, I wanna be more mindful about how I use my smartphone. I don't think you can do that alone. I think you need like maybe a friend, a roommate, a partner who reminds you like, why don't you just put that in the other room at least when you're sleeping? You know, or it's, it's easier to not look at your phone on the train if you're with a friend, right? So there is some communal aspect to this, and I do think there's often a too individualistic approach to spiritual awakening, which the person who says, I conquered all of my habitual patterns, I don't disbelieve them, I just know that they had help. So studying when we need help, and I'm not talking about necessarily a formal recovery process, but just friends, reminders. The same way you need reminders to meditate. How many people are here because a friend, to use the strongest possible language, dragged you here or nudged you here or, yeah. <laughs> and you shouldn't be here if you don't wanna be here. You really shouldn't, but Sometimes that helps, like, oh yeah, thank you for reminding me to go. So I, I think when we're working with our habitual patterns, like really think about asking whatever it is, even if it's like, oh, this isn't that big a deal, just think about asking a, a, a friend or a teacher or a community to help you out with it. To, in some gentle, non-shaming way, hold you accountable, remind you. Um, and for many of my friends, there is a sense of, of like, I really need to go to a different space. For whatever reason, I have been one of the people who could go to a bar and say, after one, I am just gonna look at all the shiny colors. It could be because I had like a talk to prepare or something to write and that made a good metaphor and I was addicted to metaphors. <laughs> but you might not be that person. And I think each of us has at least one habitual pattern that, that we need kind of somebody taking us away from the habitual pattern somebody helping us. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're not gonna become a Buddha. The Buddha did not get enlightened alone. 
Everybody thinks he did. There's no way he did. No way. First of all, he had two meditation teachers. That part is left out of the story. He did not teach himself how to meditate. So um, the other thing I want to say is what meditation is about is you start to realize on a really subtle level how we get addicted to cycles of thought. You know, and it really, feel, it really feels like I need to make my to-do list for this weekend right now on the cushion. Saturday is, n I'm gonna not survive Saturday unless I know the four errands I need to run and I figure that out Tuesday evening. Did anybody feel that way on the cushion? Any, how many people noticed a lot of planning thoughts when we were talking? Uh, how many people noticed a lot of reflection, like, oh, that meeting sucked, or I shouldn't have gone that, done that? Fantasies, anyone? As I said, my favorite. Right. Fantasies are interesting, because you're like, why would I, like, you should ask that question of the meditation teacher, like, it, it is better in the fantasy. Why would I come back? And so we really have to think about that on a longer term. Like, is, is there in meditation practice a reward that doesn't just lead back to a negative trigger? Because that would be the only way out of a cycle of samsara. And that's one of the most beautiful experiences in meditation. People say, my mind was wandering all over the place. And if you teach this stuff, you just say, that's Welcome to the team. And if there was even one moment where you realized you could just let the thought be, come back to your body and your senses, and you survived. Realizing we survive letting go of a thought is overcoming an addiction. That's, that's, that's the beginning of it. That is the innermost, most mental cycle of um, awakening, of releasing samsara. That's what Chogyam Trungpa said about his own, the founder of our tradition said, my father said, he said this in confidence once, describing his own um, experience. He said, samsara was endless and then it ended. <laughs> Which is the way a the gap, that's what the gap is, right? It doesn't end once, though. It, it's a lot of little victories of letting go, resting in the gap, and surviving. So that's all I had to say. I didn't even bring my watch with me, so I don't even know what time it is, which is very dangerous. Um, how are we doing? Does anybody have a watch? 8.07, perfect. We, we can go until 8.30. Was any of this useful? This, this book is really great, uh, Judson Brewer's The Craving Mind, and um, the teachings on the 12 steps of creation of karma, which can be really confusing. Um, uh, that's in my book, The Road Home, so to, if, if you want homework. <laughs> None of, no due date. So you talked about 
not one not being able to overcome addiction alone in, in any circumstance. I'm wondering from the, the other side of that coin, being the one who's supportive to the person who's addicted, Yeah. Uh, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. Um, that's also been one of my addictions. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> um, so so um, I think it's important to notice the thought pattern first. You know, and it usually takes some form of, you know, there's all kinds of language depending on what, where one is coming from spiritually, psychologically, what one's ethos or ethics system are. Um, so it could be like, if I don't help right now, this person's going to be in harm or they're going to, you know, really be in a bad place. Or if I don't help, I'm a bad friend. Or if I don't help, I'm a, a bad bodhisattva, if you have made that commitment, which is like, you, you can totally, we talk about basic goodness, but you could use the Buddhist teachings to uh, beat yourself up more than any Western tradition ever, if you wanted to, right? So, so just noticing like, what is the, what is the, if you're gonna put yourself in a position to help others, notice what thoughts arise when you contemplate the possibility of not being able to help. Because that's the gap in that, like, letting go of the need to help. And then it might be like, oh, they might not survive, or I might be viewed negatively or something. And then I think having rested in the gap, then you realize, like, oh, I could do this for them. Yeah, I could show up for them that way, you know. And then that feels more like positive uh, or uh, wholesome conduct or wholesome behavior rather than like, I need to help, right? Uh, we should really question, especially since a lot of people come to this path and it is about helping the world and creating enlightened society and, and we do live in a time where narcissism is the thing, you know? I mean, that's, that's really like, narcissism is the thing we trust the most, you know? It's, it's the most straightforward. Because <laughs> if you say you're here to help, you could be lying, but, right? So we are in this time where it's so important to, to want to help, but that need to help can turn into its own kind of um, uh, what Chogim Trungpa called idiot compassion. And then you end up enabling, you end up helping no one you're further harmed and the other person is. So, so really contemplate resting in the gap of what if I don't help? And rest in that gap for a moment and then decide what to do. Thank yeah. you. Is there such a thing as a good habitual cycle or is samsara implicit just always bad or are there separate? Uh, so yes, there is. There's, uh, there's a teaching, and so getting out of samsara is a more ultimate teaching, right? So, you, I mean, we could, we could think about this, right? So there is a very clear teaching on what's, I don't like this translation, but the term in uh, Tibetan, gewa and mi gewa, which means usually translated as virtuous or non-virtuous, virtuous or harmful. 
And virtuous, let's say a virtuous habitual pattern, let's just take an example. Let's say you hold the door open for people all the time, right? You, you help give them an entryway. You, you say thank you when somebody serves you, right? You, you, you ask people how they're doing. Now these could all be habitual cycles, which means you're not quite present doing them. It's just like, this is what I was trained to do. But it is said that virtuous cycles are the ones that lead towards a more long-term state of awareness. So in classic Tibetan Buddhism, it says that the kind of higher realms or the more pleasant realms of experience are based on beings coming together and creating virtuous cycles of behavior. Um, but without seeing that it's still a habitual pattern, right? So the Buddha doesn't hold the door open for anybody bec because that's what's supposed to be done. The Buddha is supposedly free of all habitual cycles, virtuous and non-virtuous, and th they hold the door open because they really read the situation as it's arising and see like this, this, is, this is what to do right now. So there's no pattern at play. But it is said that virtuous habitual patterns are the ones that um, uh, move towards freedom from habitual patterns in the long term. Whereas negative habitual patterns move us deeper and deeper into confusion. Um, and we can play, trial and error is the way to play with which is which. But um, meditation could just be a virtuous habitual pattern. But um, even if you meditate because it's what you're supposed to be doing, probably better than um, yelling at somebody for those 25 minutes. <laughs> it's, it almost seems like it correlates to what you were saying, like it can be layered up with the other stuff, the yeah. enabling or the need for validation, right. significance. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to look at because the gap is the moment where there's no pattern at play. And that's actually why it's so uncomfortable to like, yeah. to just rest. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, I really enjoyed your talk. And um, I made a note of what you said, uh, hope I'm doing justice to the way you said it, in relation to reward that creates a negative trigger. And you ask this question, is there in meditation practice a reward that does not lead back to a negative trigger? Mm. I hope I'm not uh, you know, misquoting you here. And I found this question really intriguing. You know, I mean, we, we, we do things because at some level they're rewarding, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps it could be uh, maybe slightly more generalized, like is there a healthy reward that's even outside of the Dharma? But uh, in, in the case of meditation, you know, I know this is perhaps not a very, a question that admits a very concrete answer, but what is this kind of good reward that could, I mean, ultimately even meditation can become addictive, but then something went wrong probably, right? But what is good reward? Yeah. Um, let's say you finish a meditation session, just for example, feeling like, oh, I can actually work with a difficult emotion. That's a reward, 
right? That's not sugar entering your Even body. if the emotion doesn't go away, but you have a different view of the emotion, different yeah. re relation with you the emotion. Say, wow, I, I sat with my anger for 15 minutes right. and I could actually, I didn't ask it to go away. I didn't, um, I didn't indulge it. And you gain a little more confidence and you say, wow, I'm going to meditate again tomorrow. So that's how a reward could lead back mm -hmm. to yeah, a trigger, yeah. which hopefully the trigger in that case is just you just see your meditation cushion and it's whatever time you sit and then you go back into the behavior. Mm -hmm. And then there's a sense of like, yeah, I'm, I'm working with this. You know, so that that would be a positive cycle, and it's the same kind of reward. There's a bit of a more of an abstract intellectual reward, though. I, I did yeah, the right thing. Yeah, I mean, you I'm, know, like the reward that you you feel good when you take inhale the cigarette or whatever is a very bodily kind of. Yeah, there's sense, there's different chemicals to, at play. Do right, dopamine, right? As opposed to this, perhaps a little more abstracting. Oh, I did the right thing. I know how to. Uh, I'm a step closer to dealing with my anger. Is, is it, uh, for lack of a better word, a bit of an intellectual reward as opposed to a... Yeah, there's, there's another book that I really like. And, and um, whenever we get into the scientific research behind meditation, I'm remembered, reminded of what my teacher, Sakyam Mipram Rimshe says. He says, people have known for 2,500 years that meditation works, but now that Harvard says it works, people <laughs> believe them. But two great leaders uh, in the field, Dr. Richie Davidson and um, Daniel Goleman wrote a book called Altered Traits. And they talk about, you know, different, um, uh, different rewards for the, from the short term of practice to being like a master yogi, which I think their definition of like a master practitioner is 12,000 hours of meditation in a lifetime. I think I'm like, close to that, so, but who knows? I, I did a little, I was like, do I get the reward of being included in the, um, and uh, so what they said is that as you go deeper, one of the rewards is that one of the things that happens to us when we are triggered by threatening or perceived threatening circumstances is that we, um, the prefrontal cortex basically shuts down and the limbic system, the amygdala, mm -hmm. fight or flight response becomes very active. And they said, but they have demonstrated that in master meditators, even when the limbic system is activated, the prefrontal cortex remains much more active. So the prefrontal cortex is the part that's saying, what is the nature of reality? And could I still be kind to that Trump supporter? And you know, things like this, right? That's just my, I'm not, I'm not narrating your experience, right? Um, I share it though. So. <laughs> and and um, what, what do I want to see as the outcome from this conversation as our relationship develops over 10 years? Do I really want to burn this bridge, even though I'm super angry at you? And, and so you have access to both of those. And the abstraction is that the prefrontal cortex works with abstract thought, mm -hmm. but the fact that you have access to it is very non-abstract. You can tell immediately if somebody has access to their yeah, yeah. rational mind or they, they look like a, a little salamander or a squirrel in that moment, you know? Um, so it, it feels really real that um, uh, you maintain access and that doesn't feel abstract at all. It's just that the thoughts, because you start thinking about longer term philosophical benefits, like may all beings be free, free from samsara, that's an abstract thought.
but to be able to access that thought when somebody's messing with you, th that's a major reward. <laughs> Thank you, it's a wonderful answer. This is more a reflection than a question. Yeah, please. Okay. So last year was the first year, I think, since I started practicing probably about seven years ago, that I did not take a, a long retreat, meaning like at least a week of retreat, mm -hmm. um, because I just couldn't schedule it with work stuff. Um, and I really have noticed the difference, like really, and very much in relation to the craving mind. Mm. So I feel almost like, you know, like the, in the Dead Sea or something with the high salt content, like if you wanted to dive down, you couldn't. Mm. And I very much feel myself like trying to dive and I can't. And I mm. feel very much in the surface. And a lot of it is in these cycles of like with coffee, like I'm not a natural coffee drinker. I get very shaky and I don't actually really like the taste, but I like the idea of it. Um, I love the idea of it. <laughs> It's a great I'm like, idea. oh, I'm going to be productive. <laughs> like, I have a coffee. <laughs> and I'll just keep drinking them. And, like, I don't even want it. You know, I can feel that my body doesn't want it. But it's the idea that I'll get more done or I'll, it'll, it's, like, the idea of the reward mm -hmm. more than even feeling a reward at all. Yeah. Um, and I've watched myself do that in different ways. Um, and it's just interesting because I notice, like, there's some sense for me of if I, you know, when I do get that time at least in my case, once a year, to go deeper, there's like an anchor that I can kind of mm. lay down and then somehow find it a little more easily. So yeah. I think when you were talking, I've been thinking about that in terms of like the neuroscience and, you know, getting out of a reptile brain. But I think part of that also is the deep sangha that happens, like yeah. the deep connection yeah. um, that happens. And then you can still access it. Yeah. But I just really miss it. And I really was reflecting on the importance of protecting and prioritizing ways of deep engagement, whether that's a retreat or like in nature or in art or whatever. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's the other aspect is setting the intention and, and then not just what shame does is then also says, if you don't get to do that, it's bad me, right? Um, but to actually have loving kindness towards yourself is just to remind yourself, oh, this is cause and effect, right? This is how this works. And you're absolutely right. Like, the reason meditation retreats work, I mean, show up, you can get good instructions. A lot of times um, the uh, teachers are, um, you know, helpful and wise and embodying the experience. But um, I've had more experience with people saying they loved meditation retreats where they didn't connect with the teachers than any other situation. Like, it's really the container of the community coming together and saying, we're gonna set this intention, we're gonna support each other's practice that really makes that, that deepening possible. So, I, but I also tell people, like, if you wanna know why practice works, do it for a while, then don't do it. And so that there is a kind of absence makes the heart grow fonder, and rather than that being like, I should have done a retreat this year, then just say, okay, how do, how do I bring that in to the next year, you know? And if you can, make it happen. And uh, there's a lot of people who can't make it happen, so we also wanna like understand the causes and conditions that make that those, uh, their journey harder because they may not have a supportive environment for working with their mind. I'm not saying everybody has to do our meditation retreats, but 
part of studying cause and effect is also see, actually seeing like, oh, that's how samsara works in that situation, you know? And, and uh, yeah, so sounds like you have good insight. There doesn't sound like there's any problem. I didn't think there was a problem. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I wanted to share it because I think, as you're saying, like, um, it's not only practicing for me, it's so that when I'm around a lot of reactiveness, I can hold it a bit better. This co coincided with moving back to the US. Um, right. <laughs> <but> <laughs> and not everyone can practice. And I think if we can, it's also part of being able to make a little bit of a container in like a daily interaction, which yeah. I just feel less capacity to do when I don't set aside that time. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's the flip side of the conversation with Stu is like, it actually is our responsibility to be grounded because if nobody's taking that on, we're talking Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome like <laughs> by 2025 would be my prediction, right? So, so there is a, that's part of warriorship is, yes, you, you are contemplating like, I don't have to take on every battle, especially not the ones where it just enables confusion, but yes, I do, my practice is not just about me, you know? And I've taken certain vows that not everybody in this room has taken to say like, I do have to be the bodhisattva, you know? And so, uh, that could be a shame thing, but it really helps me practice. It really does to say like, I actually, I actually have to try, I don't always succeed, but I do have to try to be the same person on the subway. There has to be at least one person who's saying, you go ahead. And I try when I can remember to be that person because if there's zero people, then it's, it, the subway sucks. Um, I don't think that's a savior complex. I think that's just taking responsibility for um, being one of the people lucky enough to practice, you know, privileged enough to practice. So, um, yeah, you'll find you'll you'll find what you need. I think you already answered your own insight. So, it's good to see you. Are you coming next year? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We uh, Alina's been on a couple years on a. Uh, retreat that I co-lead, a uh, week-long retreat at Carmen Choling, which is our retreat center in Vermont, um, uh, every March, so. <laughs> um, when I'm thinking about the samsaric cycle, yeah. I feel like with the things I struggle with, I experience it more as a spiral. Mm. So there's some like directionality to it, mm. but then there's a feeling of reversing the spiral Mm. and coming upward, but there is a kind of aspiration with that that feels really attached and feels also like its own trap mm. in a way, like there's only one way this way and one way the other way, and so right. I, I don't even really know what my question is, yeah. but just something about that. Right. Yeah. Well, so a spiral is an intensifying cycle, right? Which is the way I think when you're looking at the more intense or non-virtuous um, habitual patterns, that is often how they work. That there's like, each time around the, the spiral, you, you feel more unworthy. So you do the thing more to get a little relief from that. And it, it brings you 
down into like a really stuck place. And then maybe is the spiraling out? Does it get wider as it comes back up? Yeah, it gets better. Yeah. yeah. So that's, you just described the lower and higher realms of samsara, right? And then there's still within that, there's like, if there's that feeling of it's still a trap, then the question is like, what is the feeling of it's not a trap? Like, what is the actual mind-body feeling? Like, they're so, um, uh, we talk so much, we live in the country that has um, propagandized the word freedom more than any place that's ever existed. But what is it, this is what uh, these teachings are talking about. What does it actually feel like to feel free? It doesn't necessarily feel like Burning Man. It could, but that could just be another cycle. And it, only the people who go can, individually can say, like, I felt completely free, or this is just one of the higher realms, take high, however you think I mean it, of samsara, right? And so it's, it's, it's good to notice the patterns, it's good to notice the intensification, but then what is that moment of space, of actual space? It doesn't mean outer space, it doesn't mean there's no sentient beings or no reality happening, but it, it means that there's a spaciousness where there's a freedom to go in the direction that feels creative or compassionate or um, uncharted. So yeah, that's, it's a good contemplation. Like what, what does freedom actually feel like? And it could just be a moment, you know? But uh, has everyone had that moment? Of, that's the other, the gap isn't always uncomfortable. We remember the gap when we're dealing with an uncomfortable feeling, but the gap is also like spacious mind. Like just, and then you can let yourself be, and you can let other people be. So um, that, that's real liberation. And we often forget that because we're talking about stress reduction and how to be helpful and how to be kind to ourselves. But it is important that these teachings lead towards supposedly a state where there's no more fixation on a pattern, even the better patterns. Um, so yeah, contemplate freedom. Chogyam Trungpa said something very political, actually, and I'll end with this. Um, he said, if you're talking about freedom and your freedom is still conditional, it's not actual freedom. If you're t the definition of freedom means it has to be some unconditional experience. And that's what I took away from two weeks ago, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams' talk, that like, if your freedom is based on the oppression of others, you're definitely not free, because that's one of the worst conditions possible. So what does it feel, those moments where beyond causes and conditions, the, you just feel free? And that's a real gap experience. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hey, we're here every week. Tell your friends about the podcast. Email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. Uh, if you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. 
But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering, where you hear these talks, uh, live and in person, it happens every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for our location and for all of our upcoming additional courses and weekend retreats. Are you addicted to the podcast? Well, maybe that's not so bad. Later.